This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, Canada's music expert, Alan Cross, tells us the definitive story of how the Beatles broke up and how a Canadian had a big role in it. Then we dive into the biggest bad band breakups of all time. It's coming up on the podcast. How do you solve Facebook's problems? Greg Fist joins the Shift to chat about his thoughts and what he thinks Facebook is good at and out of control of and how they could become the next platform for the internet altogether. Sir Christopher Gilbert is back on the shift with the International Dispatch. Roster of crazy stories from around the world. Frustrations about having an anti-vaxxer in the family. Uh, pandas falling from things. And a tennis player who Chris says is very boring with smelly feet. This is the Shift Podcast. Welcome to the International Dispatch from our world citizen. Live from Japan, New Zealand's Chris Gilbert. It's not confusing, right? He was part of the shift and a shift head. Now he's in uh, Japan and he's from New Zealand and uh, he's with us here. Sir Christopher Gilbert, uh, how are you doing, buddy? I'm doing, I'm doing good. You know, I've had, um, I've had uh, two or three weeks vacation from the show. Can't really ask for much more than that. I feel replenished mm. and refreshed. Hmm. That's cool. I um I uh, I'm glad that you're back. Your face looks happy. You look everything great. Your Twitter uh, account you. has been angry at New Zealand. Everything is well. Yeah, no, I mean everything's pretty normal, right? Um, I don't know if I'm really angry at New Zealand. I'm just angry at like certain family members in New Zealand. I mm. just uh, I, I don't know if you guys have one of these in your family, but I have an anti-vexer in my in my um nuclear family in my in my immediate family i have an anti a, a, a person that is uh not wanting to be vaccinated um which is fine if you don't want to get vaccinated fine just you know stay at home and keep isolating and wash your hands and wear a mask for the rest of your life it's no big deal but like you know to like go on and tell other people not to do it in the middle of a pandemic i'm not i'm not really cool with have you guys got one of these in your family well not no actually i don't um Lucky. I have um I have some people around me in regards to the kids. It's different, I think, when you're talking about kids and vaccines, um, because statistically speaking, most of the kids are okay. Mm. Um, and then now they're taught they want all the kids vaccinated. And then I was surprised to see that over eighty percent of the kids who are twelve to eighteen here in Alberta, anyway. Um, are getting their vaccines. So things, you know, people are buying into the program, that's for sure. And I always think that all parents should do their due diligence and talk to their doctors anyway before they get vaccinated. I mean, that seems like a smart thing to do. Oh, absolutely. But I, I, I just find it a bit rich that, you know, wholesale people should not get vaccinated coming from people in a country who have not experienced the pandemic at all and yeah. have not lived in it, have not lived in lockdown, have not, you know, fared for their lives while riding a bus um tis tisking and tut tutting and and waggling fingers at uh at people who you know who do want to go and get vaccinated um i think the thing i that's I, really hard for me is uh is the political side of it um because my brother you know he he starts from a position of like well i'm not a conspiracy theorist oh i, I said it's my brother oh well i'm not a conspiracy theorist i'm a, <laughs> a, a deception theorist i i believe they were being deceived about things and I'm yeah. like, all right, that's fine. I agree with that as long as you're not crazy. But if you start being crazy, that's where that whole thing falls off the rails, you know. And so if you start t taking the formula of like being look, looking for deception everywhere, 
and start like uh, applying it in a meta spectrum to most government decisions or most you know geopolitical decisions, you start to go a bit doolally, you know, and you start to be like, don't tell me not to get vaccinated. It's my body, my choice. And I'm like, well, first of all, that's not where my body, my choice comes from. And secondly, if you did something in the public good and actually went and got vaccinated and actually did it, then nobody would have to tell you to do it. Just go do yeah. it. And then it's over. It's done. Do the thing. It's such an, it's such an interesting uh, thing to hear. To I think, and so many people connect with the fact that they've gone through that conversation as well. And I, you know, one thing I said, I don't know, this worked for me. And I said it to a friend of mine who was who was sort of of that same ilk, right? I'm not against vaccines. It's just this one too soon. Story, story, whatever, whatever. And um, and all I said was, you know, the government and treatment and the things they could be doing better. And I said to them, I said, well, I, I think it's really great that you become aware to politics and the fact that there are agendas in politics. I think that's great. But it's been going on for generations, man. Yeah, Everybody exactly. knows that. And it's not a surprise. Like, there are things that with this whole thing that absolutely stink. They stink. Yeah. They're gross. And we all know that there's agendas behind it. But the reality is, is that it's been going on for generations. And my argument is always, well, if it bothers you, run for office. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. Like, my, my response, I mean, I think you're totally right, Shane. Like, my response to all of it every time is, you think? You know, like, oh, there's... You know, there's an overreach of government power. It's like, really? You, you think that? It's like, oh, they're tracking us and they're going to follow us and our movements and our habits on the internet. I'm like, have you ever had a targeted ad pop up on, on your Facebook? <laughs> you know, or what, whatever you're using these days. I don't use Facebook. That was a slip of the tongue, I swear. But it's, uh, it's just, we know these things are already happening, you know, and, and we know that, you know, there already is too much power in, in certain organizations, corporate and government. And, Mm-hmm. It's just like it, it, they do not need to be sneaky, you know. I mean, it, there's no like, oh, we're just gonna put a little bit of like chemical in their body, and then everyone's going yeah. to, you know, start spending more money, and they're gonna give up their rights and liberties. Like, no, that's not what's happening. It's, it's, do you think it's, they can really be happened. that coordinated? Really? Like, I mean, think no. about it. Do you really think anybody could be that? They can't even figure out how to, you know, get a holiday right, right? And so it's it's amazing when people think that they have, that there's all this kind of power. It blows my mind. And further yeah. to that, I mean, people will say, oh, big pharma and agenda. Yes, big pharma and agenda. It's been like that for 50 uh, years. Like, you need we, to be aware of this. You needed, yeah. to be a, you needed to be aware of that 40 years ago. Anyway, um... We all go through I'll, it, I think, and it matters that we talk about it. I agree. I'll just end, end uh, me and Shane's mutual mind explosion um, together. I feel like we're becoming one here, Shane. But I, I'll yes. just end it by saying that the other day, I went to say the words main road. Like, oh, it's just off the main road. And I said rain mode. And that's oh, something nice. that came out of my mouth. And if that's something that happens in my everyday life, I don't know how anyone in the world, any human, is organized enough to do a global conspiracy like this. It just can't happen when there are humans walking around saying things like rain mode. We're not that smart. I'm not that smart. I can't do it. You can't do it. Let's talk about something else. Did you ever say that before you got vaccinated? It was probably the vaccine. Screw it up. (gasps) That's the thing. Oh, my God. Actually, like. I was sitting on the sofa having the same conversation with my partner the other week. And I was like, maybe this is just the vaccine working. Maybe this is exactly, maybe we're not going to know. How would you know? You wouldn't know if you had been brainwashed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ryan is well, raising I know. his eyebrows. 
I'm just saying that I went out and I got vaccinated and I also bought a new iPhone and all of a sudden it said 5G on it. I'm not trying to what? be a conspiracy theorist and I have full bars all the time. I'm just saying. Yeah, no, I um, I went out, I got vaccinated and I've totally changed my uh, opinion. I'm pro-colonization now. I think more <laughs> colonization. Let's do more of it. I take that back entirely, guys. If you, if someone tuned in, I'm not, I'm not. <laughs> Context. Yeah, Chris is just joking. All right, so Christopher Gilbert used to be a producer here on The Shift, and uh, then he moved away because he kind of got sick of us, but then he came back on the radio with us too. So you're from really originally from New Zealand. You lived in Tokyo, came to Canada, went back to Japan, and so that's why we called the International Dispatch and some stories from around the world. Where are you taking us? Um, Well, first of all, can I just say quickly that one day I really hope we make a supercut of you doing that spiel, because I think you say it three times every time I'm on the radio, and it takes you about 45 seconds each time. How many I think that when you say that here's a guy with a Kiwi accent that's uh, calling us from Tokyo, I think that's confusing for most people, so it matters. All right, okay. I tell you what, that is confusing. I tell you what, if you're a listener to the show and you know who I am, prove it to Shane, text in, and just bomb, bomb the show the text line and say, I know Chris, I know who he is. I, I listen to this every night. Chris is my chum. And, uh, and then, and, and save, yeah, that's right. That's right. I said chum and save, uh, save poor Shane some, some radio time, but we're going to go to, where should we go first? I mean, I've got the, the, do we do the pandas? The pandas are cute, right? We, yeah, we, let's we go talked pandas. about pandas a lot. Yeah. Panda cubs at Tokyo zoo. Cause I'm, you know, I'm in Tokyo they get their names. Uh, and they're to make their grand debut in January. So we've got panda cubs. We, there's a really, really famous panda in Ueno Zoo in uh, northeastern Tokyo. Uh, I think it's called Shan Shan. And it's, it's really, really popular. Like there's like posters. It's like um, the New Zealand rugby player John Lomu in the 90s was all over London. Shan Shan is like that in Tokyo all the time. It's just posters, there's billboards, there's postcards. Everyone loves Shan Shan. Not know if these are Shan Shan's kids or not, but they are called Lele and Xiao Xiao. Uh, and they were chosen uh, from hundreds of thousands of suggestions. Uh, you, uh, the uh, Tokyo governor, Yuriko Koike, or as uh, the IOC here, Thomas Bach, called her Yuriko Koiko, announced their names during uh, her weekly news conference. She said that Xiao Xiao means the light of dawn is turning brighter. Isn't that amazing? Shao Shao, That's the nice. light of dawn is turning brighter. And Lele okay. is uh, a bud becoming a beautiful flower and developing into a bright future. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have picked that myself. Um, but together, Shao Shao and Lele can mean bright dawn leading to the future. I think their names have a very bright image, she said. There was 190,000 entries from around Japan. Um, and out of those 190 entries, they chose Lele Shao Shao. They go together. Bright future. Panda cubs. Love it. Are there stuffies? Can you buy stuffies? Well, I mean, you can just get a, a little stuffy panda and call it Lele or Shao Shao anyway. Hmm. That's a good point. Yeah. Amazon.ca. Lele Shao Shao. But they're going to debut in January. You know, they, they're going to be debutantes. Uh, after Christmas, you know, I, I'm not really sure if there's going to be a ceremony or anything for these little, little things to like, um, maybe, oh, maybe what they're going to do to debut them is they're going to put them in a tree and they do one of those hilarious things where the pandas fall out of the tree and that's how they're going to make their debut to society. Pandas falling out of a tree. Have you not seen this? 
pandas falling out of the tree like if you're ever like depressed or sad or anything if you just uh google or youtube pandas falling off things and just their their massive bodies thudding to the ground it is adorable and hilarious and a little sad but like you know they're pandas so it's all good yeah so yeah tokyo has pandas um scotland has andy murray can we just talk about andy murray again we talked about him a couple of weeks ago so you, you might remember that um, on the show, uh, the, the most contentious uh, issue in uh, uh, shift hit, uh, history is uh, I complained at length about uh, Andy Murray or Andrew Murray for complaining too much uh, because uh, he was complaining that his Greek opponent in a t- tennis match uh, was uh, pooping too long, effectively. Um, I have damning new evidence against Andrew Mar- uh, Andy Murray and uh evidence why we should never listen to him or anything he has to say ever um and involves his smelly shoes and his wife uh so if we could just uh play that that first uh, clip of andy murray talking into a camera please last night after dinner here in indian wells got back in the car to go back to the hotel and the car didn't smell great um i'd left my tennis shoes in there um, it's been like 38, night, 39 degrees, so my tennis shoes are pretty damp, sweaty, nice. and yeah, smelly, basically. Lovely. I mean, the man really knows how to describe a tennis shoe, doesn't he? Um, if you ever want someone to, yeah, I mean, he, he, what a storyteller. He could have just said, oh, my tennis shoes, you know, you can imagine what they're like. You know, and let leave it up to the imagination. But no, Andy Murray had to be like, oh, they're very smelly and sweaty and gross, and my car smelled terrible. I leave. The, the man's been playing tennis for how many years, and he still leaves his smelly tennis shoes in the car? Disgusting. Anyway, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story involves his wedding ring. Let's listen to the next one. I decided when I got back to the hotel uh, that the shoes needed some air and needed to dry them out a little bit. So. I have no balcony in my room and didn't want to leave them in my room because it'd stink the room out. So I thought I'm going to leave the shoes underneath the car <laughs> um, to get some air to them and dry them out overnight. Um, anyway, when I got back to the car in the morning, uh, the shoes had, were gone. No kidding. Someone stole the shoes. Well, first of all, like you're, you're an international tennis star. Right. And it's like, oh, my shoes are a bit smelly. Oh, there's no balcony in my apartment. Oh, where's a good place to put these shoes? Oh, I'll just put them under my car. Is that is that what the first thing you would think of? I'm like, hey, I'm Andy Murray, you know, like I'm probably won some ten I don't know his his record, but he's probably won some tennis games, right? That's why he's famous. I'm a winner of some tennis games. Here, um, concierge, front desk. Take these shoes and make them beautiful for me. That's what I would say. You know, if I if I had won a lot of tennis games, chomp, these chomp. are my tennis shoes. Make them beautiful, please. I would not just like, oh, I'll put my tennis shoes under my car. What an idiot. Why do we uh, listen to this man? Well, he's smart for not putting him in his room. Yeah, well, is he smart? Let's listen to the third clip. Uh, but anyway, I was, I was preparing for my practice. Um, my physio said to me, where's your wedding ring? And I was like, oh, no. Um, And I basically tie my wedding ring to my tennis shoes when I'm playing because I can't play with it on my hand. So, yeah, my wedding ring's been stolen as well. So, needless to say, I'm in the bad books at home. 
Oh my god. I mean, he is not the freshest fry in the Happy Meal, is he? <laughs> he's not. How he's many? Not why the, does this rich guy only have one pair of shoes? That's what I, I know. know. That's exactly my point. It's like you're Andy Murray, right? Like you're like, I, and to be honest, like you know, kind of B grade. You know, he's not a Federer. You know, he's Andy Murray. He's kind of on the next tier down in terms of celebrity. And listening to this riveting audio, we can kind of see why. Um, you know, like if you can't like imagine what he's like at a press conference, you know, no wonder the media just like, oh, he's just Andy Murray. He's just a boring old guy. But like he has smelly tennis shoes. Yeah, you're right. One pair. And secondly, doesn't know how to look after himself. Probably has terrible foot care. Right. You got to look after your feet. And I don't think he is. You got to change your socks regularly. Foot hygiene. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I mean, like his, his, his shoes were smelly. How bad were his socks? He didn't leave those under the car. And thirdly, his wedding ring. He ties his wedding ring. I was like, oh, his wedding ring, he ties it to his shoes when he's playing tennis, which is incredibly, you know, like risky. They might fly off, you know, and lose your wedding ring and hit someone in the stand. But the last point is that, like, it took his physio to point out to him that he wasn't wearing his wedding ring. Mm. it's like he was just like at <laughs> tennis training and his video is like oh where's your wedding ring and Annie Murray's like oh yeah good point and he is like I better go look under the car for it which is where I put my wedding ring last night I think I'm over it Andy Murray like you're not um I, I'm should I I'm not gonna I'm gonna go short of canceling him I'm not gonna cancel him but I'm gonna cancel him from the radio and conversation and celebrity and anybody liking him He's gone. He's done with me. I'm I'm done with Andy Murray. He he did he did find his wedding ring though. Um, oh. It turned up at the hotel lost and found, meaning that uh, this is effectively the most boring story I've ever done on the shift. Uh, this is what he has to say uh, in my Andy Murray voice. I spoke to security and they said they found nothing. I was like, well, they're gone. I was going to file a police report to increase my chance of getting them back. I went and spoke to the hotel and explained to them what I was going to do and then decided to take all of my deeds. It's so fascinating. He's just talking about <laughs> filling out a police report. Uh, I asked the hotel to look at the cameras and an hour later, oh, they turned up. Somebody found them. And I'm like, all this for nothing. You know, you just embarrassed yourself by looking like an absolute drip on the internet for absolutely nothing. But congratulations, you got your wedding ring back. I hope you still have your wife. <laughs> Amazing you have her in the first place. <laughs> I'm, I, I, I hate it when you sugarcoat things. It drives me crazy. Um, I, yeah, I have no, I just, I don't know. This, this guy drives me crazy. I don't know why. I, this, is, this is my new Mittens the Cat. I don't know if anyone remembers Mittens the Cat that I absolutely hated. Andy Murray is like... I, I don't I, I I say that I don't want to talk about him anymore, but I feel like he's gonna come back one day. I I'm I'm he riles me up. He pushes a button mm. somewhere. Cool. So Christopher Gilbert in Tokyo, what are we talking about? Sandwiches? Oh yeah, let's talk about the PB and J. Okay, cool. This is fun. Uh so um Sunday's NFL game was between uh Buffalo Bills and the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh apparently there were like some big thunderstorms. Um Kansas City, I'm assuming it's in Kansas, and Kansas is known for thunderstorms. Those are some things that I know. Um, during the break in the game, 
uh, there was uh, snacks. You know, the players go and they have, you know, some little little bit of snack in the back room because, you know, they're big boys and they need to, you know, have a snack every now and then. And um, obviously uh, they like to have peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, uh, but, uh, you know, not, not happy about um, exactly how they're made. Uh, here's uh, a clip of one of the sports reporters talking about that. They are eating, eating sandwiches, although a couple have complained to me that there's too much peanut butter on the sandwiches. It's like 70-30 with the jelly, so they're not enjoying those as much. But basically keeping it, you know, business-like, but very relaxed. Yeah, so like some unhappiness about the ratio of the uh, PB to J. Um, 70% peanut butter, 30%, as they say, do, do you say jelly in Canada or do you say jam like a normal person? Oh, jelly. Oh, I say jelly. Yeah. So what is what do you call jelly then? If jelly if jam is jelly, what is jelly? Well, I call it raspberry jam, but then I'll say PB and J. It's like do you want some want some jelly on your sandwich? So I guess I do both. Ryan, I'm I'm pulling you in here. Wake up. He's all for the what do you say? Do you say do you, come on? I just, I just saw his eyes jerk away. <laughs> Ryan, do you call it jam or jelly? Jelly. Uh, this is hurting my jam brain. Or jelly, Ryan. Okay, hold jam on, or hold jelly, on. Ryan. Jam. It would be a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Oh my god! But it would be if I got no, I would call it a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, but I call it jam, raspberry jam, blueberry jam. So interesting, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, Whoa. also very Canadian. Like, I won't forget that. Oh, yeah. uh, you know you. You guys use uh, miles and, and kilometers interchangeably depending how far you're going. Um, I thought that was a fun little thing of living over there. Um, but yeah, they say 70% peanut butter, too much PB in the J. Um, and then they had a little bit of <laughs> sports banter back in the studio. Let's listen to that. We're going to send it back to the studio. Mike Tarico, I want to know what the proper ratio is on a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Back to you. Well, to me, the real question is, is it grape jelly or strawberry jelly? Does that matter? Yeah. And then how are we cutting it? Are we cutting it, you know, square or rectangular? And white bread or whole wheat? Triangle. Right. Really sounds like a six-year-old's birthday party there, doesn't it? What ones have you got? You got triangles. By the way. Just to be clear. Uh, yes. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. No, absolutely. What about ratio, Shane? Uh, well, you got to go 50-50. It's that simple. It's got to be balanced, man. Yeah. This is a world of equality. I'm a jaminist. Yeah. Um, so here is an interesting thing. You said is Kansas City in Kansas, and it's oh, actually no. not. Oh, um, no. Kansas City is in Kansas, but Kansas City is also in Missouri. It's uh, one of those border what? towns, so it's half and half. Yeah. Kansas City, Missouri, and Kansas City is a city in Kansas. So it's in both. The border goes right through the middle. So oh, we so have to go. find out what side the stadium is on to find out if I'm right or not. Oh. Is it on the Kansas oh. side of town or on the Missouri side I think, of town? I think so, I remember learning that it is on the Kansas side. Yes. But it kind of has both appeal. Don't quote me. I'll look. It's one of those border towns. It's the way it goes. All right. Well, yeah. uh, what we take away from all of this is uh, – COVID arguments suck. Pandas fall out of trees. It's funny to watch. And which, by the way, I put a, a link of uh, pandas falling out of trees at the Toronto Zoo on our Facebook group. Just go to shiftheads.ca. It'll take you right to our Facebook group. And so you can check those out. And 
Raspberry Jam, by the way, is the answer. And because of Chris's question, uh, for all the people that know Chris to text in and let us know, um, you'll be very happy to hear that um, uh, Catherine um, says, I know Chris. And um, <laughs> one other person said, oh, Dwayne said Potato Chip Gilbert. And that was it. So uh, thank you, you to both got, of you. I've got... You know, that was meant to be a, like a, a self-esteem boosting thing, but I think it's horribly yep. backfired. Backfired. So Christopher Gilbert, live from Tokyo. Thanks, buddy, for being here. Appreciate it. I'll see you next week. This is The Shift Podcast. I don't know if you heard this, but the Beatles broke up. Breaking news. <laughs> Ryan O'Donnell does not like the Beatles. Alan Cross, does that offend you? Uh, it does, because you can't be a music fan without liking the Beatles. I mean, who doesn't like the Beatles? How can you not like the Beatles? I agree. Um, at least, um, I mean, no, you know what? I was going to say the influence they had, but no, this, there's some songs there. I don't care. It Like, there are some songs that are undeniably catchy, some of the best songs ever, ever made. Short, sweet, to the point. Holy cow, still stand the test of time. I find there's no excuse to not like them. They wrote and recorded about 200, well, they recorded about 250 songs. Of those 250, at least 150 are very good, and probably 100 are like out of this world. Yeah, it's good stuff. Okay, so Paul McCartney doing an interview says, uh, it was John Lennon's fault why they broke up, so I felt inspired to reach out to my buddy Alan Cross and say, huh. Now, this isn't really new news. I mean, it was more about blaming Yoko. <laughs> yeah. Let's still John through proxy. Let's um, let's get to the bottom of this. Now, by the time the Beatles uh, entered 1969, they were not getting along well. Ringo had left at least once and came back. George had left once and came back. And they were trying to get the Let It Be album together, and it wasn't going well. Apple Corps, their new record label and electronics company and whatever else it was, was not doing well. They were fighting over management. Uh, three of the guys wanted Alan Klein to take over for Brian Epstein. Uh, Paul McCartney wanted his new father-in-law, Mr. Eastman, to take over management. There were all kinds of issues going on. And... Um, it was just a matter of time before things got to the point where somebody wanted a divorce. Now, remember that the Beatles at their greatest, like the Beatles career essentially lasted seven years, 1963 to 1970. And they were releasing two albums a year. They were doing movies and TV specials and short films. I mean, they were working at a breakneck pace. And, well, and travel did, wasn't easy either back then, and they were traveling all over. And, and things got, you know, pretty, pretty tired. So what happened was in June of 1969, there was something called the Great Rock and Roll Revival. This was a festival in Toronto at Varsity Stadium, uh, and it was designed to bring back the great rock and roll stars of the 1950s. So um, Eddie Cochran, no, it wouldn't be Eddie Cochran, it would be a, um, Chuck Berry, it would be Jerry Lee Lewis, you know, that sort of thing. And it was not selling well. Okay, so the doors were added. Okay, still not selling well. A new band called Alice Cooper was added. Still not selling well. And the promoter was really, really concerned because uh, some of his backing money had come from, let's just say, shady sources. And they, <laughs> Back alley sources. <laughs> they did not want uh, to lose money on their investment. So 
with less than a week to go before the show, John Brunton, the name of the producer, uh, the name of the promoter, uh, just out of nowhere called up Apple offices in London and asked to speak to somebody. Is John Lennon there? It so happens that he was. And the secretary, the receptionist, put him through to John Lennon. And he says, look, we've got this gig that's happening. We'd love for you to come and play. Bring Yoko. Bring whatever band you want. Just please, please, please come to Toronto. For whatever reason, John said, yeah, uh, I'll do it. Not having a band at the time. So he had a couple of days, maybe less, to actually pull together a band, which included people like Eric Clapton. They were given a first-class air line ticket to, to come over they rehearsed their set in the plane wow and they basically came straight from the airport to the gig and uh john was absolutely terrified because he had never performed away from the beatles he hadn't performed in public since 1966 at candlestick park so this was a really big deal for him but the show went on even though he and yoko were suffering from some serious heroin withdrawal uh, the show went on. He played a bunch of um, covers. He played some new songs. Yoko uh, spent part of the show on stage in a bag screaming, uh, which didn't really go over well. But for the most part, John <laughs> and the audience had a really, really, really good time. So this is June 1969. So we get to through uh, September or through uh, yeah to September. The Beatles have finished recording the Abbey Road album. It's uh, about to be released on the 26th of September of 1969. And the band is having a band meeting. So there's John, George, Paul, and Ringo on the phone. Because Ringo, I think, had a throat infection, couldn't make the, the show. And Paul uh, was, was still after everybody about the, uh, the management situation. Uh, but at the same time, they were having this basically you know this this amicable dis, uh, discussion about you know what do we do next and the next album but john somewhere along the line during this period who is still on a high from the great rock and roll revival appearance in toronto said to the rest of the guys you know what i want a divorce and everybody else said oh, all right okay well i mean it's probably time for it and, you know let's just hang on because we got this other album this let it be album coming out let's let's just get through this and and, and, you know, whatever. So John had decided in September of 1969 that he was the first one that was actually going to leave. That meeting, he wanted the divorce and the Beatles were done. Uh, what happened was in April of 1970, Paul McCartney jumps the gun and he says he quit the Beatles. So the person who wanted out first was John. The first person to actually proclaim he was out of the Beatles was Paul. That's amazing. He seems to have carried that for a long period of time and wanted to clarify now. But why now? I'm not really sure. I think perhaps, um, you know, Paul McCartney has given a thousand billion interviews about the Beatles. And uh, maybe he's just starting to repeat himself. You know, it's yeah. somebody asked the question. And, you know, I, if I was him, I would bristle at it, too. You know, Paul, I, Paul broke up the Beatles. No, 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 no. Paul did not break up the Beatles. John did, but kept it quiet. And Paul would be the first one to announce it. I get that part of it. Like the, oh, yeah, you're not going to leave. I'm going to leave. And then the optics of it, of course, come reflect back and go, wait a second, it's your fault. So, well, I mean, I, that would be a burden to carry for all that time. If you're like, well, no, you know what? I've carried this, this heavy backpack 
for all these years. It was his fault. I'm done with it. Almost like somebody made a flippant comment at a party and he walked out, was like, I'm so sick of this. I didn't do it. Right. You know, that's kind of how I get the feeling of it. Well, yeah, I think so. Uh, and, and the problem was when when Paul announced that he was leaving, it was there was some really bad timing because uh, around the same time he released his first solo album. So it looked like he was capitalizing on that. He was, you know, just leaving the band in the lurch and, you know, the Let It Be album was there. You know, it it it, it wasn't handled very properly, very well back in, in, in April of 1970. And um, Paul did not get a lot of good press. So I, I think he just wanted to set the historical record straight. That's an amazing story. Alan Cross, um, are there any other band breakups that are bigger than the Beatles? No, 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 no. Uh, The next biggest one will be the end of the Rolling Stones. When that finally happens, they have to finish this tour that they're doing. There's only Mick and Keith from the original band. Uh, You know, Ronnie is still the new guy joining in 1975. Charlie Watts is no longer there. Bill Wyman's long retired. So how much longer do the Rolling Stones have to go? Um, When they announced their that they're done, that'll be just just catastrophically bad. But it's going to happen. It has to. It has to happen. So when you look at other bands, you know, you got what? You got Zeppelin, Floyd, um, even Oasis. I mean, I don't put Oasis oh. in the same realm as the Beatles. I don't do any of those. But those it, are the ones that sort of come up. Yeah, let's let's look at them. Um, with, with Led Zeppelin, they had, you know, uh, a pact that if one member of the band were to leave, well, then the band would break up. So John Bonham dies in 1980 of a vodka poisoning situation. Uh, there was no question. I mean, you know, within hours of, of, of his death, it was like, no, we're, we're done. We're finished. And Zeppelin was on the downside of their career at that point anyway. So it wasn't a real yep. surprise. Um, Oasis, um, it's amazing that they lasted as long as they did. Uh, <laughs> what ended up happening at a backstage of the show in Paris is that Liam and, and Noel got into one final fight and, um, like a, a plum was thrown at Liam and then Liam broke Noel's guitar and it was just, a, uh, and then, then, you know, minutes before showtime, Noel says, that's it. I've had it. And, and, and leaves the venue. So, you know, he's got a full, full house and then Noel decides that, that that's it. Um, who else did you mention? Uh, well, I said we've got Pink Floyd. Um, Pink we've Floyd. got okay. Zeppelin. So that, yep. that's, a, that's a weird one because at the beginning, you know, it, it was it was Sid Barrett's band. And then yeah. David, David Gilmore was the guy who, who really drove the band or it seemed that way. And then through the 1970s, Roger Waters exerts more and more and more control. By the time we get to the wall, it's it's very much a Roger Waters thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the animosity between the two of them, Gilmore and Rogers is, or, uh, Gilmore and Waters is so intense that, uh, they're, they're never going to get back together. Never, ever, ever. Um, and the fact that they did get back together for live eight, remember that, uh, that mm-hmm. one time only thing, I don't know how they managed to hold it together for that show, but it'll, that will never, they'll never get back together i've always kind of looked at pink floyd like a three band band right i mean the sid barrett stuff and that's when i learned about pink floyd was when sid died i put together a sid barrett special because they he was much more that sort of psychedelic flyer guy that weirdo that created the music and then there was the pink floyd of the early floyd uh well the mid-time floyd and then the roger waters kind of stuff at least that's how i understood it yeah um so that's why i kind of feel like the three separate bands almost pretty much i mean if you listen to you know piper of the gates of dawn you listen to metal and animal uh metal and and uh, dark side of the moon and then you listen to you know animals and the wall and um it's these are different sounding bands all very good but you can see how the personality of the group shifts 
when pop always comes up in this, I mean, ABBA was a big one, of course, internationally, and pop always goes internationally in this conversation. Someone said to me One Direction, and I was like, but One Direction's not a big impact because most everybody's been more successful on their own after that. So it was actually a bit of a gift more than anything. Is there anything from the pop world that even crosses over to big breakups? Well, that's a really good question. Um, ABBA was, was the interesting one because, you know, that was two couples and then they divorced and you know, all just sort of fell apart for after, after a while, they stayed together for some time, uh, although they were divorced. Um, we're seeing cracks in Fleetwood Mac, hmm. Uh, you know, with Lindsay Buckingham. And uh, so that's not exactly a breakup, but that's, you know, their, their situation is rather tenuous. Um, a big pop bands. I'm sure there are some, I just can't think of any. I mean, you got Spice Girls, which was just so, they were so lightning in a pan. I don't think that they have the same impact, but generationally a big impact on one generation. I always look at the biggest bands have multi-generational impact. Yeah, I, I, I suppose so. Um but pop is by its very nature uh, evanescent. It, it, it comes and goes very quickly. And there were very few pop bands that have, uh, especially from like the last 25 years yeah. that we can say have, have honest to God staying power. Um, I'm just trying to think if there's another major band that would freak people out on the level of, let's say an Oasis reunion. And, and yeah. I'm sure there are, and I'm sure maybe people NSYNC. In St. Backstreet Boys. There you go. That might help. Maybe New Kids on the Block. I mean, they did come back together and that was, you know, but that's a a limited sort of thing. Uh, Who wouldn't want to see, you know, uh, you know, on Oasis reunion, uh, uh, you know, for a while we were hoping for a Clash reunion, a Smiths reunion. Um, It's, it's, it all depends on the money too. You know, if you have a, a promoter that's willing to spend big dollars to lure a group back together, and keep them happy and together like the police for example i mean that oh, that's that, a great example that tour uh, you know grossed almost 500 million dollars and those three guys hate each other like i mean it's not just a little bit but they just they just cannot stand to be in the same room with each other so for them to be able to uh pull together that tour for 500 million dollars well it tells you where you know what was talking in that particular <laughs> okay so you've been to a lot of concerts and you've seen a lot of shows. If one of those bands were to come together, I'll have the Beatles or something like that, would you be the first one in line to get a ticket? I would probably be very interested from a news point of view, but the problem with the reunion is that you want the band to be the same age as, as you were when you were into them at the, the first time. There's <laughs> yeah. nothing, you know, you, I've gone to a couple of these reunion shows and I look up on stage and my, I go, my God, they're old. And then you think, if they're old, I must be too. Now, last week, for example, Roland Orzabal and Kurt Smith of Tears for Fears announced their first album in 17 years. They released a promo picture with it. And you looked at the promo picture and you went, holy crap. <laughs> but then you realized that you first got into Tears for Fears in 1983. So, of course, they're going to be old. Yeah. I saw a flock of seagulls, man. <laughs> flock, <laughs> flock of seagulls was my the ultimate reminder because it was a bunch of dudes that didn't have the same haircuts wearing sweatpants sitting in chairs yes. on stage. They did yes. not stand up even. <laughs> I, I saw them uh, and they were actually, they had changed their sound. They were more of a metal band than a techno pop band when I saw it. <laughs> Absolutely mind blowing. Uh, great conversation. And um, thank you for the insight. I didn't know that part of the story about John Lennon and how he sort of stepped out on his own in the beginning. 
Yes, um, and it's a Canadian's fault. Yeah, and it's a Canadian's and fault. It's John Brunton, the promoter of the Great Rock and Roll Revival in June of 1969. Gave John the idea that he could work on, uh, he could work on his own, and John realized he could, and that was it for the Beatles. So there you go. Guess it maybe wasn't John's fault at all. Blame the Canadians. And <laughs> it's a South Park episode ready to happen again. Um, we'll blame the Canadians for the Beatles. Thanks so much, Alan. It's great to see your face. I really appreciate being so generous with your time. Very welcome. This is the Shift Podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. to the world of weird things. With Greg Fish. Fishy is down in California and he wants to talk about fixing Facebook. He seems to figure that in the next 15 minutes we can fix Facebook. On your market set, well, go. Hi, Fish. Let's not get crazy. Let's not get crazy. I don't think we're going to fix Facebook in 15 minutes, but uh, we're definitely going to talk about it. And mostly about the fact that uh, it's terrible. Just <laughs> from every single angle that anyone has studied what it does and how it works and how it makes its money, it's just bad for us. Beginning, end, that's it. No redeeming quality whatsoever. All right. Good chat. I agree. <laughs> it's worldofweirdthings.com if you want to check out all the things that Greg Fish does write about. But how do you solve a problem like Facebook? It is... As last week proved to us when it went offline, it is deeply woven into our habits of our lives. Well, it's not just deeply woven in the habits of our lives. It's also deeply woven into a lot of websites because when Facebook appeared, it kind of capped off this trend of social media platforms and everyone in the in silicon valley wanted to integrate social media into everything so all the logins and the sharing um a lot of um a lot of sessions that were being shared between social media platforms facebook really kind of woven itself into a lot of things technically speaking so it, it's it's really not quite as easy as just turning it off so Let's let me elaborate a little bit more on what the actual problem is. Uh, there's really two of them. Uh, the first problem is that Facebook is basically trying to buy up everything that it possibly can, like a lot of large companies are. Um, and so services that people would rather not see plugged into Facebook or being used with Facebook ID or being taken over by Facebook are. So, for example, like WhatsApp, which is used in a lot of countries as kind of like a primary communication mode. Um, the other problem is that the actual business model of Facebook, a lot of researchers have basically said, hey, you know, there's a lot of hate and extremism on the site that you're not really doing anything about. There's a lot of scams on the site you're not doing anything about. Uh, people are getting radicalized because what happens is they say, well, I like this conservative politician um, or I like this this liberal politician. The next thing they know it sneaks them away into a land of conspiracy theories. 64% of all people who ended up joining a page that was later classified as an extremist page by the RCMP, by the FBI, by um, law enforcement agencies, they got there because the, the Facebook algorithm recommended that they join it, which is pretty damning. Um, and then on top of that, there's also research that says it's bad for mental health. People who use it a lot report being more depressed and less social, uh, especially uh, teenagers say it really hurts their self-esteem because they're kind of being compared to the greatest hits of their peers. So 
all of these, all this research has been brought to Facebook over the years, and Facebook said, and so what? They spend mm-hmm. time on the site, we show them ads, who cares? So that is already a huge problem because, you know, when someone says, hey, terrorists are openly organized on your platform and you say, yeah, 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 we'll shut down the pages after, you know, long after the damage is done, long after we already introduced all these terrible people to each other. We're just we're we don't we don't care. Fine. We'll shut it off. So you stop yelling at us. Um, So there's definitely a growing consensus among governments that something needs to be done. There has to be some sort of regulation in place. Um, But the problem is that you can't just kind of go to Facebook and say, okay, well, shut it down, or this is what your moderation looks like, because when you start regulating the exact kind of speech that appears on Facebook, um, there's a very high potential that, let's say, you have a government that does it for good. You know, they want to go after um, actual terrorists. They want to go after people who are promoting fascist ideologies, people who promote anti-Semitism, people who are trying to start, um, you know, terroristic acts. And... Another government could switch it, you know, to shut down any sort of political opposition. It's it's you you can't really use that use that tool. It's it's um, it's way too much power for someone to have. However, however, uh, what you can do is you can attack the business model directly by essentially saying you can't gather personal data. You can mandate standards of what can and cannot be collected how it can be sold, how it can be tracked, and have extremely significant punishments for violating those standards of data collection. Because everything that Facebook does is it basically tries to spy on you, then sell the data that it gains to advertisers. If you limit what it can do to a lot of opt-in things, like for example, you have a user that says, okay, yes, I want ads about XYZ, and they just get ads about XYZ, this really hurts that particular business model, but but also what it does is it reduces the incentive of trying to keep people on the side and trying to keep them engaged at all costs to mine some extra thing that they can sell because they can't actually monetize it. So that would be one very simple approach. If Facebook's model doesn't survive that, well, too bad. You know, it's we 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 don't actually. You know, we, there's no business that we go out and say, "Well, you're harming your customers, but you're making money, so that's okay because you're making money." You know, that's not that's not how we do things. That shouldn't be how we make exemptions for social media platforms. The example I give is this, and I've said it before, and maybe I've said it to you, Fish. If I own a building downtown. And someone paints a swastika on the side of the building. Someone paints a phrase that is nasty. Somebody posts posters that are aggressive, misinformation, and wrong. As far as I know, every city I've ever lived in has a bylaw that says, me as the building owner, it's my responsibility to maintain that building. I've got to take the graffiti down. It's my building. Somebody wrote on the side of it, nasty things. It's my job to take it down. It's pretty common, normal bylaw. If you go on the internet, somehow Facebook's not responsible for the property that they maintain and the property that's not theirs. That seems out of balance to me, Fish, and that seems incredibly wrong. 
it on the one hand yes but on the other hand you do have the issue that facebook cannot necessarily regulate what comes out of people's mouth unless it really wants to and again there's a there's a profit for them because the people who will draw swastika or write something nasty there's a way that it can monetize them if a building owner could do that i'm sure you'd have definitely buildings that say well you know it's freedom of expression etc 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 and that's actually where we get into the real problem with social media the way that it exists today what social media does is it allows people who want to shock us who or who want to do terrible things uh, a way a, a way to better connect other people who want to do terrible things uh, the whole premise is really let's connect everyone. Let's give everyone a bullhorn. Let's give everyone a megaphone. Everyone can say whatever they want unless they like literally break the law. And then everybody will just be happy and there will be understandings and people will find common ground. And and this is this, this utopian view that's been around since the dawn of the Internet because the people who created the Internet as we know it were these genteel academics who had very um, nice debates and uh, about what the future is going to look like. And it was just a big land party with friends. Well, nowadays they're really bad people on the internet and we kind of made no allowances for that. And we've allowed incentives that say, Hey, you know, if terrible people want to make you angry at something and then sell you stuff because you're angry and you're spending a lot of time inside being angry, then we'll just take a cut and we don't care. So unless we, we aim at that, we aim ourselves at that behavior, we're going to get into that morass of trying to regulate what speech looks like and what free speech, free speech on the internet looks like. And that really starts creeping close to something that can be horribly abused by an authoritarian government. Um, You know, I, I can tell you, I don't trust that maybe the next incoming American administration wouldn't use a law like that to essentially silence all political organizing for their for their political opposition. I have I, I cannot hear I can't tell you that that won't happen. Um, I know that China uses their internet assets and their internet regulation to shut down any sort of debate that it doesn't like. I know Russia wants to do that. You, you don't want to hand that kind of weapon to people. Um, it, it's it gets really nasty. And really just empowers the slide into authoritarianism in countries that are flirting with it right now. And then there's one more problem um, where we have to start considering the paradox of tolerance, where uh, one of the things that has happened, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but from what I've seen, we've become so enamored with the idea that we want to give everyone a platform that we don't really care what they do with that platform, which runs Contrary to Karl Popper's so-called paradox of tolerance, where a society becomes so tolerant that they tolerate intolerance, that they end up giving a platform to people whose only real goal is to silence their opposition, either by outshouting them or when that's not enough, by actual force. As an example, right now in the United States, we have very heated school board meetings, which you may have heard of, and we have people organizing on Facebook and essentially saying, we're going to go to this school board meeting and we're going to shout at people and we're going to threaten teachers and we're going to threaten school board members and this is where they live and let's show up at their house and let's scare the kids who go to school here. 
And that's this is where you start getting into that incredibly dangerous area of you are tolerating the intolerable. You are tolerating intolerance. And with when you go to Facebook and say, well, you have to do something about this, they say, it's freedom of speech. What are we going to do? You know, it's it's not like all these it's not like these groups are like the number one thing on Facebook, omitting the fact that a lot of these conspiracy groups, all of these extreme groups get a lot more engagement than your average group. So anytime that that's another thing that Facebook likes to do, anytime that they tell you that, oh, it's really not a big deal, it's being exaggerated, and they give you some numbers, those numbers are usually carefully crafted to omit very important information about engagement numbers, reach, number of activity, number of members. They put it in a scale that makes it seem like it's not a big deal because they have billions of users. Um, But in reality, it's usually some sort of gaslighting. And Facebook knew that because they had an entire organization under them that was supposed to research all of these problems, but they disbanded it when it started publishing a lot of research that didn't really look that well for Facebook. Hence, we have the whistleblowers, since we have all of these uh, congressional hearings, and this is going to continue, but it's just a question of, is this actually going to go anywhere? Who owns the internet? I mean, if if I own the server, right? I mean, in China, I would say the Chinese government probably built and owns the internet. When you look at um, infrastructure in North America, private enterprise built lots of it, right? So, I mean, whoever owns the internet, you know, probably is the owner of it, kind of like that example I gave about the building. So in North America, I would suggest, as far as I understand it, nobody in particular owns the internet. But we do own the server where these messages reside. So that further indicts Facebook, doesn't it? Oh, no. They're, they're, they're guilty of pretty much everything that you can accuse them of. Uh, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. The really big question now becomes, yes, no one necessarily owns the internet. And by design, no one was supposed to own the internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but there are some debates uh, where people say that it should be a public utility. It should be treated as a common good. We all own the internet. Therefore... A number of common rules apply, but what do those rules look like and how that's actually going to play out? I'm honestly not sure. In this particular case, I I can't really give you an informed opinion on the subject. I can just tell you that there's people who advocate for the idea that the internet should be a common good and it should be regulated as a utility, Um, but I, I don't necessarily see the how this would help the problem of um, essentially society's tolerating their worst citizens being amplified as much as possible and essentially hijacking national coverage and national discourse by abusing social media that doesn't do anything about it. When you take people and you put them in the same room with like um, perspective, hobbies, and so on, that was sort of the idea, right? Like if you liked pickup trucks, it fed you more people with pickup trucks. Therefore, you could build your community. Look at me found all these pickup truck fans. People look as by human nature, we look for evidence, right? We look for evidence because we're afraid to be wrong. We often don't look for uh, support. We don't look for information. We just look for evidence to make us not feel stupid. And so when you're being force fed other people that think the same thing as you, not only do you not feel stupid, but you feel empowered now because you have built a sense of community and you have been surrounded by a bunch of people that agree with you. 
So it is interesting, and um, it is a fundamental part of humanity, is that I want to belong. And when you feed a bunch of people that think the same way you do about those politics, and that's all you feed them, you learn very quickly that the rest of the world does not exist outside your bubble because this is where you belong. And that grows, and it's dangerous. Worldofweirdthings.com is Greg Fish's uh, website if you want to go check it out. It's super fantastic for it. And in fact, ironically, Greg, I'm going to take this article, and I'm going to post it on our Facebook group. Ugh. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. It's great, right? I love it. Thanks for being here, buddy. I really appreciate your passion in this one. I can really hear it. I mean, you're passionate about a lot of things, but this one, this one really gets you. Well, it's because I am a techie and I work on a lot of tools that allow people to communicate. So, and it really comes down to just not wanting to harm people with the things that I build. That's why I'm passionate about it. Clear clarity, isn't it? It's a magical thing. Greg Fish, thanks, brother. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.